You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Well, we know what that sound is. That is the time for straight talk. It's the opportunity for you to take over the show. You are the one that can uh, dictate how the next half hour goes by your questions and by your comments even. And you can do that either by making a phone call to 877-795-0122. You can either be on the air or you can just submit your question by making that phone call. Or you can do it also through Facebook. But once again, that number is 877-795-0122. Not everybody has an opportunity to talk to a priest about uh, a question that they might have. Some people might be intimidated by doing something like that. So this is your chance to do that. So 877-795-0122. I'm not saying I'm going to have all the answers, but I am a priest and I can at least give you some answer, whether it's right or wrong. Is that new music? I think that, that did sound like new music, and so actually we had we had a um, uh, we had a question from our uh, the the voice in our heads uh, that I thought was very good. And so we're going to get the voice out of our heads and into the public uh, for everybody else to hear. With Eli had such a great question, so Eli, are you there? Oh, I'm always here, Father. I know you are, which is <laughs> it's kind of scary in some ways. But uh, uh, Eli, what was your question? And I thought it was I, I thought it was such a great question because. It was like right after that segment with the bishop. Well, yeah. So, you know, Bishop Felton was on talking about saints and people, you know, that are important to him that aren't necessarily like canonized saints. And it made me think, can a saint ever be like uncanonized? Is that, is that a thing? Yeah, that's, yeah, that is a good question because it's a lot, a lot of people have a misunderstanding of that. And so a saint cannot be uncanonized. So one thing we have to recognize is that the canonization process in which people are declared a saint has changed throughout the millennium. It's not always been the same. In fact, it's changed quite a bit. And it used to be up until, I don't know, maybe about the 11th, 12th century, there was really no formal canonization process. There was maybe local bishops would have declared a holy person that lived in their area a saint. And sometimes those those titles stuck. And so some of the saints that we have come from that era. And a lot of these people that were, so to speak, canonized or made saints in the early years didn't have a lot of um, uh, really solid records on their life. There's not like solid record keeping. They're real. They're very real people. And they're very holy. And they're in heaven with God. But because we didn't have really... Um, uh, strong records of their lives based on today's standards in the 19th, late 1960s Pope Paul VI uh, cleaned what we would say the liturgical calendar he cleared out the liturgical calendar because every day had one or two saints and so was, he just wanted to get away from that idea of having so many saints every single day to make it a little bit more special and have the saints that had more of a broad appeal and so a number of, the, number of those saints that were taken off the calendar in the late 1960s, a lot of people think, well, they were uncanonized. They were not uncanonized. They were just taken off the official liturgical calendar. And most famous among them, for sure, St. Christopher. You know, he's the patron saint of travel. Uh, he was not uncanonized, but a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, Christopher was uncanonized. He was not uncanonized. He was just among several saints that were taken off the liturgical calendar for lack of really clear records on their lives in these early years because the process was so different than what we have it today. See there, that was, that was a good question. And I don't know if it's as good of an answer, but it was a good question. Thanks, Eli. That's helpful. Good Thank job, you. Eli. Can I have a follow-up question? Sure. 
<laughs> what goes into picking a saint's feast day? Is there like a specific thing or is it just kind yeah. of like, oh, let's just do this day? Yeah, I'd say 90% of the time it is the day that they died. Because we say that they, they lived, well, we all live to be with God in heaven. But they are victorious on the day of their death because we know that the, the saints are going to heaven. They're victorious in reaching their goal. And so the day of their death is most often the case. Obviously, there's notice, no, notable example uh, exceptions to that rule, especially if a saint you know died on a feast day of another saint. You know, sometimes they'll change the date. Like, you know, my favorite saint, John Paul II. We didn't. His date of death is April second. That's not his feast day, though. His feast day is what I think the twenty second of October. That was the day that he was actually um, uh, installed as our Holy Father. And so uh, there are different dates based on the saint, but. Uh, Close to 90% of them, it's the day of their death, their birthday into real life, as we would say. Thanks. Yeah. Great. And we have a question. All right. We have a question from Bruce from Duluth. Can suffering be considered spiritual currency? And does a lot of suffering get wasted? Okay. Thank you, Bruce, for that question. I don't, I'm not familiar with the, um, uh, the, the term spiritual currency. I wouldn't, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily use that uh, phrase. But suffering obviously can have value. Uh, you know, Bishop Fulton Sheen used to say that his his least favorite place to visit were hospitals, not because of the suffering, but because of the wasted suffering. And so, uh, yes, suffering can be wasted, and suffering can be uh, fruitful in a in a spiritual sort of way. You know, um, you know, the Catholic Church is is the the body of Christ on earth, and as the as the body of Christ on earth, we know that we're all connected, we're all interconnected. And how our suffering, in a mysterious way, our suffering can be of a benefit when we offer that suffering up uh, to whether it can be somebody that's going through a tough time now or the souls in purgatory. I remember uh, uh, saying a lot of our older listeners are going to remember this. It was a very, very common saying back in the day, offer it up, offer it up. You know, my grandmother always used to say that, Richard, offer it up. Anytime I complained about something, offer up your suffering in God's mysterious way to make that suffering can be can be life-giving in some ways. We have to look at it, you know, all the saints. The, you know, I mean, St. Teresa of Avila would say, you know, to, to God, you know, he said, if if you um, uh, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder why you have so few of them, she said to God, because all the saints suffered so greatly. Jesus suffered. And so we would never say that suffering is without value. In God's mysterious way, uh, suffering can have a very um, spiritual impact on the church. And so, We've gotten away from that idea of offering it up. We need to get back to it. It's like, if you suffer, say, God, I don't know what suffering this is going to do, what good this is going to do, but I give this suffering over to you and ask you to to make some good of it. So, yeah, thank you, Bruce. That was a good question. Yes, and if this weird, but my favorite uncle passed away. So prayers, Bruce, anybody, if you just pray for that suffering not to be wasted, because there's a chance it what could was your, be. What was your uncle's name? Uh, junior. Okay. All right. Well, He's a wonderful for, man. Pray for Uncle Uncle Junior. Yeah. So my family is having a super tough time. So I'm just praying that the suffering will bring yeah. something good. Thank you very much for the uh, question. You can you can submit submit a question or talk on the on the phone with us. It's eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two. That's eight seven 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 nine five. 0122, or you can submit a question via Facebook. We do have some uh, we do have some questions in the hopper. We're just waiting to get the go ahead to answer those. But uh, think of anything anything that you might have a question about what's going on in the world today, and uh, you know whether it be you know in the secular realm or in the religious realm. 
uh, don't hesitate to call. It doesn't mean that I've got the right answer, uh, but um, at least you'll get uh, uh, an answer from a priest's perspective in regards to always looking at it from a faith perspective. So it's 877-795-0122. That's so, 877-795-0122. It looks like we have a question. We do. Mandan, North Dakota. Mandan. Uh, is it acceptable for a Catholic to receive communion while attending a Lutheran worship service? Thank you very much, uh, caller from Mandan. You know, something's going on in Mandan. I was, it seems like I hear a lot coming from Mandan in regards to the faith, so there must be something good going on in Mandan, North Dakota. But anyhow, good question. Can a Catholic receive communion while attending a Lutheran worship service? We would say that is not advisable. Uh, we do not have shared communion. That's because our theology is very, very different. And communion, the very word itself, implies not only union with God, but communion, union with those that you are worshiping with. We do not have a shared uh, theology and belief in the Eucharist as the Lutherans do. As a matter of fact, I would posit to say that the greatest difference between Catholics and Protestants or Catholics and Lutherans uh, is not purgatory, not Mary, not the saints or the Pope. It's the Eucharist. Our understanding of the Eucharist is very, very different than theirs. And so we don't want to uh, put the sacramental cart before the horse by saying, well, let's go to communion together and then we'll come together. And that's one way we'll join together as, as, uh, as faithful brothers and sisters. And so, no, uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have them come to Mass. To, to, they can come to Mass. We wouldn't have them come to communion and nor should we go to theirs because that's presuming something that's not even there. You had a communion. great theology on tap about that. We did so uncapped. Priest. So theology uncapped, oh, uncapped is when um, uh, I'm having a, a discussion slash debate with a Lutheran uh, minister, and those are coming up again September 23rd. I'm sure we're going to hear more about that on the air here. But we did have one uh, with Pastor Peter Coetz, uh in regards to uh, the Eucharist, and we spoke to that yes. and uh, about shared communion. There are some denominations that. Like like ELCA Lutherans, I would say, is that they would be the ones that would say, if you're there, we welcome everybody to come up to communion. The Missouri Synod would not say that. There are Lutherans that would not say that. And so each denomination within even Lutheranism is going to be a little bit different about what they would call, wow. quote-unquote, open communion. Huh. So, yeah. That's odd. So thank you, caller from Mandan, who is without a name. So Father Justin used to do an on, on tap because it was at a bar? So, there was, so there's, there's two different things. Theology untapped and theology un, No, theology on tap. Yes. And theology uncapped. They're two okay. different things. So, so theology on tap is kind of like more of an international thing. And we've done them here as well. I've done some theology on tap where you just go to a bar and it's open to the public, anybody, and you talk about a theological topic. You know, right. it's a really good way to get people that are just sitting at the bar. You know, they didn't go there for that reason. Theology uncapped is what I'm more involved in now. And that's not as broadly done as a, a theology on tap. And ours is uh, my discussion and slash debate with a Lutheran pastor. And those have been super popular. And oh we're gonna, again, we're, we're, they're starting up again on September. So next month already. Are I, don't, I don't think so. you could have fit all those people in a bar. No, we <laughs> always sell out. We to. always sell out. And so um, uh, I think that we'll, we'll try and get um, uh, a little bit more information about that coming up on, uh, on Real Presence Live in the future. That would be cool. So yeah, uh, great question so far. Why don't you uh, call 877 877- Seven nine five zero one two two for all of you that have a question, or you can just do it via Facebook. Cindy, do you have a favorite saint? I do, Saint Augustine. Saint Augustine, his feast is coming up. I know, and I also like Saint Paul, but I love him because, like Bishop said, it's like they had difficult lives. And so it's mm-hmm. like, oh, me as a, a sinner can be something, you know? It's like yeah. 
I just love how their life was so tough and and they still made it to sainthood. So when you say his life was tough, what well, do you mean not by tough that? for him, but he lived in sin. He was kinda, right. Well, we all live in sin. Yeah, but he was more the bad sin. No. Yeah. Well, well I <laughs> he mean, was, he was a player. Well, I don't know. I don't know if he did that. <laughs> he was promiscuous. But, well, he, I mean, he was a he was a he was a the type of person that a lot of people are in the world. We all are in the world. Is that we seek happiness in things that don't give us happiness, and and uh, some people delve into that more than others. And Augustine famously said, "Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord." And so he was seeking happiness in all these things of the world that were not giving him happiness or giving him emptiness. And he finally, it finally, he had this big aha conversion moment where it's like, okay, it's only God. God is the only one that's going to give me happiness. And so. You're right. Augustine is like one of the main saints of conversion. You know, he had this big, he had the life before um, uh, conversion, the life after, and they were totally drastically different from one and another. And same thing with St. Paul. Although I didn't really like St. Paul to begin with, but I've grown, he's growing. Well, he, he did write more. half of the New Testament, you know. I know. Not like I know that, but just the fact he could kill Christians, and then right? if you've seen the movie, Apostle Paul. I have not, but it, I've read the book. At the end, spoiler alert. All the people he killed welcome him into heaven, and I oh, think that's okay. that's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. People that you never yeah, thought would. Yeah, yeah. no, that's pretty cool. Love it. Yeah, so you have an opportunity to make some phone calls eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two, or you're just going to hear me and Cindy blabber. So I mean, it's up to you guys eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two. It's not that we don't have a lot to say, but this is your opportunity to actually call in with a question. We have a question in the hopper. It's going to be ready shortly, but uh, you can do that phone number or you can submit your question via Facebook. And now the question is ready. Cindy, do you want to read that? Well, he's call- He's on the phone or not? No. Nope, calling. Not okay, so he's calling from Brandon, South Dakota. And what's his name? And his name is Dan. Hey, Dan. And Dan is asking, why do they allow the relics of saints to be spread about when the church recommends that the body be buried whole? Yeah, very good. That's a good question, Dan. That's a good one. I've gotten that question in the past as well. You know, saints are a little bit different in regards to how we deal with their um, remains and the, the typical person. So when we have a saint, there is a, uh, people are raised to the altars, as we say. They're canonized, made a saint, because they give us an example. They give us an example of how to live the Gospels. They, saints are the Gospels lived. And saints always... Um, uh, Draw they uh, you you can't be a saint without drawing people to God and drawing people to Christ and so the lives just like we had the conversation with Bishop Felton certain saints inspire certain people to get closer to God we all have favorite saints and uh, you know and so one of the things that we do in regards to saints that really maybe um, inspire us that we want to emulate is that. As humans, we are very tangible creatures, and we want to have a close proximity to people that inspire us. Let's put it on a more basic level. Think of grandma. All right, grandma died, and grandma's got a lot of things. And there's something of grandma's that I always loved, and I'd love to have that thing of grandma's because it will always remind me of her. And if I have this thing that she had as a part of her life, in a very real way, it's like a relic. This, this thing reminds me of grandma. This is important to her, and now it's important to me. I want it in my life now, so I want something of hers. That, in essence, is what the saints are. And we do that to the, even a greater level in regards to their their bodies. You know, the body is, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
and the saints' remains, everybody's remains at death are sacred, all right, because that was the temple of the Holy Spirit. But saints in a particular way. And so even in our altars, you know, Catholic churches, all the altars have a relic of a saint. And that is to really draw us to that tangible gospel lived in that person's life. And so relics, although some people might see it's very macabre and very odd, but relics have a huge part of our spiritual legacy as Catholics to give us a tangible connection to this person that lived the heroic faith life. And so we treat these people that are canonized saints in a different way than we, we treat, you know, you know, Uncle Junior or, or Grandma and Grandpa, that we, we bury them because, you know, we are dust and the dust we shall return. But uh, when these relic, when these saints have a real broad appeal to help people get closer to Christ, then we do this practice that is, again, seems odd to a lot of people, but is very important to a lot of people's faith journey, and that is the spirituality of relics. So you can't travel to Europe and not be blown away by how relics have played a huge part in church history because they're front and center in so many churches throughout Europe, more so than what we have experienced here. Will we ever get back to Europe? <laughs> yeah, well, I think so. I mean, there it's I open. So it's, it's open, you know, and so um, uh, uh, we, we've had a lot. We've had a lot of trips been canceled over the my trips to to Europe have been canceled over the last two years. But hopefully that'll be opening sometime soon. But I don't know. Anyhow, so eight seven seven Dan, great question. Thank you very much from Brandon, South Dakota. So uh, call it eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two. That's eight seven 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 nine five. 0122, or as I have said repeatedly, you can do that through Facebook. And so don't be afraid to ask questions. We've got about, I don't know, about eight minutes of this segment yet, and so we got plenty of time to call in with a question. Unless Cindy's got a question or Eli's got a question. Eli can rear his head again from the anonymity of the back rooms of radio <laughs> if he has a question. He's not rearing his head. It, the churches up always at the thinking. altar, yeah. and they always have. The, um, a saint inside the altar, in the right? altar, right? It, do they try to match the saint with, no. with the name of the church? No, no, or no. does that matter? No, it doesn't matter. And so, in art, in the diocese of Duluth, and I've talked about this on the air in the past, is that in the diocese of Duluth, almost all the relics in the altars is Saint Irenaeus. Okay. When we were established, as, as we were established as a diocese in 1889, the Pope at the time, Leo XIII, sent over a substantial relic of St. Irenaeus to the diocese to put into the um, relics of the churches. So Irenaeus is our guy, uh, but um, they don't really try and match it with the saint of the church. And so they put these, they, they call their altar stones, or little small stones that um, uh, the saint's relic is embedded in, and then that altar stone is embedded in the in the altar. So that's how they do it. And that's why you kiss the altar? No, I mean, we kiss right. the altar at the beginning and at the end of Mass because that's where the sacrifice of, is going to happen. You know, okay. the sacrifice, and that's where Christ is going to leap down from heaven onto earth. And so the, the altar becomes the sacred thing. I mean, the relic is there, obviously, but what makes it more sacred is, is the consecration that will happen at that, al- at that altar. So we kiss it in reverence. So Eli, you got anything? 877 That's 877-795-0122. The voice in our head just said he has a comment. What is it, Eli? Well, sort of going along with the whole, like, you know, saints, relics, and churches and stuff. There's, I guess, not necessarily a saint relic, but there's a church in Horace, North Dakota, St. Benedict's, that has the skull of, I think it's either the first pastor or one of the early pastors uh, in the huh. wall. In, like in the wall? Can you see it? In case. Yeah, it's really interesting. Oh, yeah. wow. Mm-hmm. What's the oh, name? What's the name of that man. parish? Saint you know? Benedict in, uh, I guess it's in Wild Rice, so right by Horace, North Dakota. 
wild race. What diocese? Fargo. That 20, is very interesting. Ooh, can we go on a field trip? Well, so here's the deal, Cindy. You're a prisoner of mine. I don't want you to do that after I'm dead. I don't want you to get my skull and put it in the wall of, uh, of the church. <laughs> no. Yeah, And probably I am going to go before you because I am older. And so that is a little bit of a bizarre thing. But, you know, again, you go you – because go, he's not a saint. But you go to Rome, it's like you see all sorts of body parts on the walls of, of, uh, of churches, which is a, a big – again, seems very macabre and strange to a lot of people, Catholic and non-Catholic alike. But um, relics, which I love, I'm fascinated by it. I've read tons of books on the history of relics. Uh, it's to me, it's always been a, a great part of our Catholic tradition. Yes, you know, because Dr. Timrich went with you to Rome did. during a holiday, and they brought out. I it was during the was. feast day of Saint Luke. Yes. Yep, and and, uh, and we had mass at the uh, at the altar of the relic in Orvieto, and uh, we didn't realize that at first. I didn't even notice it, but they have at, the, at that basilica in Orvieto, Italy, they have the arm of Saint Luke. And so it was halfway through Mass. It was actually during the homily. I realized it was there. And so, look, there's the arm of St. Luke. He's the guy who wrote the gospel. So his arm was right there. It was kind of cool. You know, and, you know one, of the, one of the dark sides of the whole saint, the whole relic thing, is that you know, there's been long periods of time throughout history where there's a fabrication of a lot of fake relics. And, and a lot of, you know, uh, and it still exists today in live, in like, uh, live auction houses and stuff like, like eBay and stuff. There's the dark side of selling and buying and making fake relics. And so that's out there. That's a very real thing. And we had a guest a couple months ago, actually, Father Adrian Hilton, who was a priest friend of mine, who we spoke a lot about that. And so, yeah, it's a, there's, um, we have to be careful about stuff like that. You can't buy and sell relics anyhow. So we have a listener question, not on the phone again, but that's okay. Judy calling from Fargo. Do you want to read that question, Cindy? Sure. Is, well, they're, okay. Um, at Easter Vigil, Easter Dawn, Easter Day, and Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, we have different readings for each Mass. If we were to attend each Mass, could we receive Holy Communion at each Mass? Wow, Judy, that's a good question. Ooh, and that's, yes. that's a, you made whoever's typing that uh, <laughs> type a lot. And so uh, that's like a good a run question. On sense so, too. so, Judy, um, I would say, now, there might be somebody that knows better than me about an, answering this, but I would say no. So we are given the opportunity to receive communion twice in a day, given that it's two different masses. So uh, typical wedding, t- wedding or funeral time, and then mass that day later that day, if it's like a Saturday, people often ask, well, I went to the funeral earlier today. Can I receive communion again? Yes, you can. They're two totally different masses. And you're mentioning different masses. They're different masses in a way. They're different readings. They're really kind of the same mass, but they are different because they have different readings and even different prayers, per se, but it's the same thing, same mass, per se. But the reason why, Judy, why that was even put in place is because people used to really abuse it. People had a lot, a really, um, a very, maybe a, not a very healthy spirituality. And it was very common back, again, we're talking centuries ago, where people would go around if they were in a city with a whole bunch of different churches and they'd go around and try and hit as many different churches as they could to receive communion, even if they went at the last five minutes right before communion time. And the church said, you know what? That is not a proper way of uh, Eucharistic spirituality. And so we're going to put the kibosh on that. And so uh, um, no more than two times a day. And so that's what's in place for the church right now. You can't go to communion more than two times a day. There might be an uh, an odd situation where there could be a third. You'd have to talk to your pastor in uh, in advance of that. But um, I would say two times a day is what is uh, is expected, and uh, not expected, but what is allowed, I should say. So, Judy, I hope that answers your question. Even though there are different readings and different different prayers in those days that you set, 
uh, two times would be the maximum. Judy, good question. So we do have, an- we have another question. Okay. Does a special mass after 4 p.m. on Saturday with different readings than prescribed for the weekend, i.e. weddings or funerals, um, count for Sunday obligation? Good question. Uh, most priests, uh, I don't know who asked that question, but most priests would, would actually would actually discourage something after 4 p.m. for a wedding or for a funeral, certainly for a funeral, but for a wedding, sometimes it happens. But uh, does it take the place of the Sunday Mass? Typical question priests are asked on wedding day. And the answer is no, it does not take the place. And so the the Mass is about the, the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day is not necessarily about checking off the list of the of you know going to mass, but you enter into the mystery of the life of Christ that is actually mapped out in the liturgical calendar. And so, if they had the mass after four p.m. for let's say if it was a wedding, and the priest said, "Well, if you want to, you can do the readings of the day and the prayers of the day," then that would be it. Then that would count. So as long as it's the readings of the day and the prayers of the day of that liturgy so like next next sunday is going to be the 19th sunday of ordinary time if i had a if i had a wedding after 4 p.m. saturday evening and they took those readings of the 19th sunday of ordinary time yes that fulfills your sunday obligation but if it's not those then it does not but it's a very Got common it. question that's, that's asked yeah. Eli, did you say you had a question oh i no i said that last question was definitely not for me Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. So, I mean, we, thanks, Eli. We've had we've had a lot of good questions. I don't know if we're accepting any more, but eight seven 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 nine five zero one two two. If we are, we have two minutes left of this segment, uh, and so I'm very pleased with these questions. That means that um, people are listening, and people are in, as, in, what what is it? Um, inquiring minds want to know. Do you remember what that was from? The National Enquirer. The National Enquirer. No. Inquiring minds want to know. And so, good questions, and I'm very happy I was able to answer them with true authority even though I might not have had the right answers. But as long as I speak it like I know it, then people are going to believe it. Mm-hmm. Oh, we got one more. Ooh. Eli, are you there? My question is, following okay. up on the whole relics conversation, oh, what's right, the yep. most bizarre relic that you've seen? Oh, there's some bizarre relics out there. I'd say um, uh, the tongue of St. Anthony. That's incorrupt. That's a weird one. Um, uh, the thumb of St. Catherine of Siena. It's, it's really interesting. So St. Catherine of Siena was really kind of cut up and really put in weird places. So if you go to Siena, her head, you can see her head. And then right alongside her head, you can also see her thumb. And so, wow. uh, so yeah, that's kind of interesting. So um, uh, we, we have less than a minute, I know, and I see a question coming up in the hopper. So um, if you get that, that um, uh, green for us, we can answer it very quickly. No, I'm just going to say it's Natasha from Duluth. And then I can... Okay. Something about the Sunday obligation. How do you best respond to Protestants? What obligation is, I suppose? Is that what the question is? Uh, we have an obligation to Sunday Mass because of what the Eucharist is. Uh, Jesus said, and I think it'll be in the coming Gospels, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life within you. And so, because of our theology of the Eucharist, we have an obligation. And uh, the Lord's Day, it's different than what Protestants... Remember what I said earlier, the biggest difference between Catholics and non-Catholics is the Eucharist. That's the biggest difference. And so the Eucharist dictates our Sunday obligation because of what we claim it to be in faith. And the Protestants don't do it, so they don't have a Sunday obligation. So um, uh, that's how I would respond if I'm reading the question correctly. Summarize it one more time. Uh, the question is, Don't uh, okay? Are you, our theology of the Eucharist is very, very different than the theology of the Eucharist of, of Protestants. Jesus says in John 6, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life within you. Because it's the central part of our faith, the source and summit of our faith, and our theology of it is so different than what they are, we have an obligation. They don't. Because of what we say it is, they don't say it is. So that's it. All right. 
Are we at break time, Eli? All right. So after uh, good good questions. Thank you, everybody. After this question, we are going to be talking about somebody from a Newman Center in North State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. 